Hi, I'm Patrick Henningsen, host of the Sunday Wire, and you are listening to the Alternate Current Radio Network. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com and also after the show on iTunes for our podcasting community. You can download the show minutes afterwards, uh, either on the Spreaker API, which will be on the show page, uh, and later on on iTunes. So on our just before the break, um, we I was talking, Mike. We were talking about the uh, the, the new G7 mechanism. Uh, and the OPCW report, and how the, the bar is just getting lower and lower and lower for the justification of military intervention, On in this case, uh, supposedly on the basis of chemical weapons. Now, uh, our next guest, uh, we're going to be talking about that with our next guest, Vanessa Bealy. She's an independent journalist, also an associate editor of 21st Century Wired.com, and she's joining us on the live link right now. Uh, and there's this to talk about. Plus, we've got the white helmets are, of course, back in the news this week. Um, but uh, hello, Vanessa. How are you? Hi there. It's good to be back on. Hello, Vanessa. And uh, we we uh, were interesting to see that the white helmets made the headlines again. But uh, to, uh, not no big surprise. Uh, you had published an article. Uh, mm-hmm. A few weeks ago, when the, when the re- initial report came out that there there was going to be a freeze in funding, this was the beginning of May, I believe, end of end of uh, April, there was going to be a freeze in funding of the white helmets. Uh, you came out immediately, almost immediately, with an article explaining uh, that uh, there was actually going to be no freeze in funding; that the funding, the money, w- will keep flowing to the white helmets, and it didn't get a whole lot of interest um, at the time, Vanessa. But it turns out that I think you were correct. Uh, in your assessment there, but um, just to you know, walk us through this story, how this thing is unfolding, uh, and the white helmets, commonly known as the Syrian civil defense, uh, they've aped the name, of course, from the real Syrian civil defense, and there's supposedly a search and rescue NGO uh, based in Syria, uh, but they're not actually based in Syria; they're based uh, in Turkey, uh, and they apparently are around in Syria, but nobody actually knows. Uh, a whole lot about what they do. Uh, they do produce a lot of films and videos, uh, and also some, according to some of the residents that you've interviewed on the feature that's up on 21st Century Art, pinned at the top of the page, uh, some of the testimonies from some of the residents of the Eastern Ghouta area as to what and who the White Helmets really are. But uh, go ahead, Vanessa. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it was very interesting, the timing um, of the announcement of the funding freeze. And actually, it came uh, about 24 hours, I believe, from memory, after the Russians had again um, warned of a possible false flag provocation to be carried out by the White Helmets um, to the northeast of Syria in the area that is occupied by the United States and a number of NATO member states, 
special forces and of course um, the SDF, the US proxy in that region. Um, and then uh, that warning from the Russians also followed on from Heather Nutt, um confirming that the White Helmets would continue to receive their wages and they would still be taken care of despite an announcement of a potential um, freeze in funding. And then we suddenly got this this headline news of funding freeze for the white helmets, and you know um, the, the the media went sensationalist again for a little while. But what was interesting when I looked into this, I mean, I was immediately skeptical of this. But when I actually looked into it, at about the same time that that announcement was made, so that announcement followed on from this Russian warning of a white helmet provocation. Um, so was this, you know, the Trump administration trying to distance itself temporarily from the white helmets um, if they were, for example, to go ahead with a false flag? <laughs> because in the research that I've been doing very recently, what I am seeing a pattern of is the fact that those on the ground that have obviously been tasked to stage and present these um, false flag attacks um, are, are, are basically... Um, running them on an almost daily basis, for example, in Guta. Some are being picked up, some are not. Um, but it's quite an extraordinarily chaotic environment um, where I believe neither the media um, nor the state entities that are in touch with these assets on the ground, such as the White Helmets, such as um, those being supported by Sam's Medical, Syrian American Medical Society, for example, and a number of other um, players in this sort of what I would speculate is one of the largest and most extended psyops that we've ever that that we've seen in a hybrid war for the last seven years inside Syria. Um, basically, the left hand doesn't appear to anymore know what the right hand is doing. So it's quite possible that is one of the reasons why the U.S. administration decided to try and distance itself from the White Helmets in case they went ahead regardless with some sort of staged event after the Russian warning. But at the same time, Raid Salah, um, the head of the White Helmets, uh, was in, I believe it's Arizona, Pat, <laughs> actually, at the McCain Institute, um, his Sedona Forum, 2018, where he was presented, Raid Salah was given yet another award for courage and leadership. Um, and at the same time, announcements will be put, were being put out by um, one of the media representatives, of which there are 150 at last count um, for the White Helmets. So the White Helmets have 150 media, um, media team which is kind of extraordinary for a grassroots or alleged grassroots organization of less than 3,000 members. And actually, to be fair, I don't think I've ever, if, if I were to count up the faces of the White Helmets that I've seen, it's well below 3,000. Right. Um, so this so-called media um, representative put out an announcement at that point that the White Helmets had actually been given a contract by Turkey and by Qatar. Now, of, of course, you know, this is a supposed NGO that has just been awarded a contract by Turkey and by Qatar, two of the main incubators and financiers of the terrorist groups that have been in Syria for seven years. At the same time, the White Helmets were given increased funding uh, by Theresa May in compensation for the loss of funding from the US administration. So quite clearly, 
um, the whole sort of mirage of a funding freeze, in fact, enabled them to receive greater funding from a more diverse range of um, actors. And in fact, a recent Freedom of Information reply um, has shown that the UK government directly has funded the White Helmets almost 39 million to date, so from 2013 until now. Now, that I'm not sure if that includes the financing or the millions that have gone to Mayday Rescue, who, of course, was set up by James LeMessurier one year after he established the White Helmets in order to act as a sort of go-between between between the British government and the White Helmets as regards financing. So that needs to be investigated, but Mayday Rescue is also on a regular basis um, being financed by the UK Foreign Office. For example, in March, they received almost 3.7 million. Um, So if we go forward to the recent award by the Trump administration of 6.6 million, interesting figure, um, to the White Helmets and some organisation which is called oxymoronically the International Impartial Independent Mechanism, (laughs) which nicely echoes, you know, the White Helmet claims of being independent and impartial while being multi-million financed by the NATO member states directly who have called for regime change inside Syria. So basically, let's look at the timing again. Um, And I'll I'll go through it as a timeline. So we had 70 tribes um, from the Al-Hasakra, Aleppo and Raqqa regions. So uh, Al-Hasakra and Raqqa are in the northeast in the area where the US is illegally occupying. The tribesmen of these tribes met in Der Hafa and they decided to unite against the US occupation and against the SDF, um, the US proxy. So this was a major um, thorn in the side of the US alliance in the Northeast in particular. At the same time, the Syrian Arab army is mustering forces Um, alongside its allies, to move to the south to challenge uh, the terrorist groups and extremist groups in Dara that are are particularly being funded and controlled um, by the US-UK CENTCOM in Jordan, of course. And we know that the so-called moderate opposition, the Southern Front, the Free Syrian Army, have been heavily infiltrated by Nusra Front and by ISIS. There have been reports of Israel recruiting and training ISIS on its borders. Um, So we know that there is a big push by the Syrian Arab Army and by Russia and by Hezbollah and by Iran, despite the claims by Israel that there has been negotiations for Iran not to be involved. Um, That was, as far as I'm aware, was not agreed with Damascus. Um, so there's a big push to to pretty much confront um, the Israeli custodians of the Golan territories, basically, right? Um, and then, of course, what we had um, was Russia warning again about potential chemical weapon attacks in Deir Ezzor, so in the area that would be focused on by those 70 tribes that have united against the U.S. coalition. Almost immediately after this, we had the OPCW report that I think you were just talking about, um, which is a is a sort of quite obscure event that happened in March 2017, a very typical OPCW report. 
this is in, I believe, the attack took place in North Hama, um, Hama province. So, of course, there was no site visit. We have to conclude that it was the white helmets that supplied the samples, just as they did uh, from Han Shihun. There are, as far as I could see, no hospital records. Of course, the usual inconsistent witness statements, some saw a helicopter, some etc. Um, but the 6.6 million funding, and this is where, for me, it gets interesting. So this is divided, in theory, between the White Helmets and this uh, mechanism, the International Impartial Independent Mechanism. Let's look at who's behind or, or who is supporting and advocating and lobbying for this mechanism. If we run through a list of a statement that was made um, earlier this year, we find Amnesty International, Soros-funded Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect, Human Rights Watch, International Federation for Human Rights, Open Society Justice Initiative, and the World Federalist Movement. So these so-called NGOs who've signed up to the, the 3IM organization are not Syrian NGOs, of course. They are shadow state NGOs. The majority of them are being sponsored and financed by NATO member states. Um, so clearly, this is an organization that has been set up to uh, ensure, and I'm reading from their statement, to ensure that justice and accountability for the mass atrocities committed in Syria over the past seven years are not swept away by a veto. But of course, this is only going to be looking at the mass atrocities that are alleged to be committed by the Syrian government and by the Syrian Arab army and its allies. It, it of course, makes no mention of the atrocities committed um, by the NATO member state backed and sponsored and promoted terrorist groups inside Syria. But then, of course, who is this organization going to be reliant upon to produce the narratives that are going to enable them or will corroborate um, their evidence of these mass atrocities? Of course, it's the White Helmets. So what we see here is a clear funding of an organization, two organizations, one on the ground, one external to Syria. The one on the ground will be feeding the information to the one external to Syria in order to criminalize um, and demonize the Syrian government and its allies during these, um, let's say, last military campaigns to, to take full control of areas um, of Syria. <laughs> hey, Vanessa, can you repeat that last um, minute? Because I think we had a dropout on the oh. call. I just want to make sure there's no important information in what you just said, because uh, we seem to be getting uh, hit with these uh, blockouts. Uh, oh, okay. Periodically. But go ahead and just... Backtrack. Where, uh, where did you hear up to? Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, no, I mean, basically, this 6.6 million um, that has been awarded to the 3IM organization, which, as I've pointed out, is a, is a totally sort of um, deep state, neocon backed organization. Um, not representing Syria, representing NATO member state interests in Syria, and of course um, Zionist interests and Saudi interests also. Um, and who will be feeding the narrative to that organization to enable it to demonize and criminalize the Syrian government and its allies, particularly during um, the last military push towards the south and towards Idlib, and also uh, the potential of clashes in the northeast between the um, tribesmen and the U.S. occupiers and their proxy occupiers, the, the SDF. Um, so it's clear that this is um, th this is 
deep state instigated this funding. Uh, it, as I said, it comes on the back of the Russian warnings of uh, false flag provocation. Um, and quite clearly, this seems to be preparing itself and we should be predicting another false flag of some description, either in the south or in Idlib or potentially in the northeast, of course, to allow um, NATO intervention and to allow the US coalition potentially to bomb areas in the northeast to secure its position there. I think, Vanessa, one thing that I don't know if you picked this up, but Italy has deployed troops uh, around the area of Derizor this week. Uh, I don't know if you picked that up or not, but yeah, does, um, that, does that feed into this uh, this narrative which you, you're you've got uh, constructed here? Yeah, I mean, there are. I think the Italian Minister of Defence has put out a denial, um, but of course, the UK Ministry of Defence also denied that it had boots on the ground in in southern Syria, um, and that has since been proven to be um, an outright lie by the UK Minister of Defence. Um, we know that there are NATO member states uh, on the ground in the northeast and actually elsewhere in Syria. So personally, I wouldn't be surprised um, whether Italy are in there. I haven't had any, uh, you know, solid confirmation of that. Um, but again, as I said, I wouldn't be particularly surprised. I, I doubt that there would be a very large force. Um, but of course, you know, the, the NATO member states and particularly the U.S. are going to be keen to keep their hold on the oil-rich regions in the northeast and also to, to maintain a presence both in the northeast but also in the south, which enables them, um, or how they perceive it, to attack Damascus, of course. And, and we, we shouldn't forget um, that they, there were many reports, um, and this is why... The campaign in Eastern Ghouta, if you like, was such um, a fast campaign. I mean, it was over relatively quickly once Russia and Syria decided that they were going to liberate the whole area. And part of this is because um, I have seen reports of intelligence that the U.S. were considering um, moving militant factions from Al-Tanaf uh, in the east to Eastern Ghouta to reinforce um, the extremist factions there to prevent the overthrow of Eastern Ghouta, or the liberation, let's say, um, by the Syrian Arab, Arab army, because Ghouta was incredibly important. I think Israel in March 2018 actually put out an article stating that Eastern Ghouta was incredibly important to Israel. Of course it was, because the terrorists had taken control um, of the Damascus air defense systems there. Um, and the, its importance to Israel was demonstrated regularly as soon as the Syrian Arab army made any advances into eastern Ghouta. So what did Israel do? It bombed Meze, um, the, the military airbase um, just outside or, you know, in the suburbs of Damascus. So, you know, I think what we're seeing, I mean, in, effectively, um, and I would actually strongly recommend people to read uh, Tim Ripley's book, Operation Aleppo, that has just been released, which um, is an incredibly objective and insightful mm -hmm. look at the Russian campaign, in particular inside Syria since 2015. And I think it will surprise a lot of people. Tim Ripley has written for the Sunday Times. Um, he's written for Jane's Report. He's a mili military defense expert. Um, and his review of the Russian campaign is quite extraordinary. But I think what has been, you know, what he makes clear and what are many, many analysts are making clear 
is that militarily, um, the Russian intervention and then alongside its cooperation with the Syrian military has completely outflanked the US coalition, basically, in all, on all levels, on the, um, the social winning hearts and mind level, on the um, military level, uh, and on the diplomatic political level. And so what we're really seeing are the last throes of the military campaign to liberate the last occupied areas of Syria being Idlib and the south and then, you know, a number of smaller pockets. And then, of course, there remains the northeast. Now, President Assad has said that he is keen to try to negotiate with the SDF. Now, the 70 tribes coming into the battle will make a big difference because the tribesmen, um, if you like, they, they, they're separate to, to a large degree to the Syrian Arab army. These, these are tribes um, from those areas that I mentioned, from Haska, from Raqqa and from Aleppo, who are a considerable force. Um, and certainly the SDF will be thinking twice about taking them on, um, unless the US, of course, is going to considerably power multiply or further than they already have. So... Basically, it's not looking good for the U.S. coalition at the moment. Um, so I do believe we there is potential um, of new chemical, you know, alleged chemical attacks or, or stage provocations. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I think is consistent looking from the beginning of this conflict till now is the, the, the very few, if any, incidences of, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Vanessa, of, of Kurdish uh, militia or fighters really engaging in a violent way with with either Syrian Arab army units or even with uh, government pro government uh, national defense force, for instance, these types of militias or Arab tribesmen. Um, it's it's not that common. In fact, it's not it's not uh, desirable uh, for the Kurds. Uh, it's not their mo. And I think this is where the U.S. has a big problem. Mm. Uh, they're facing so they they're not natural enemies. In other words, Damascus uh, and the Kurdish populations uh, that are scattered around the northeast uh, and also in Afro. And they're, they're not natural enemies of Damascus per se, although that's how it's been mm. portrayed in the West. They're constantly trying to build up this division. Uh, but in a way, it doesn't really reflect the reality of the situation. Do you think this is a big problem for the U.S., Vanessa? Yeah, I think it's a huge problem. And I think, again, if you read Tim Ripley's book, it confirms um, what I thought, which is, in fact, um, it was almost a race between the Russians and the US to to gain um, the confidence of the Kurdish factions. Now, in the northwest, I believe that, that the Russian um, influence outweighs that of the US. And actually, in Afrin, I mean, there's been a number of reports recently that the Kurds in Afrin support the Syrian government and the Syrian Arab army. Um, those that, of course, have now been driven out by Turkey uh, and its proxy extremist militants on the ground there. Um, and the Kurdish population of Syria is a relatively small percentage. And then again, that percentage can, can be brought down again to those that are actually pushing violently or, or insisting upon separatism. Um, and of course, the, the numbers, um, their determination to be separatist is being uh, heavily, um, you know, driven by the US and by the media, particularly in the West. I mean, many people, and particularly actually traveling to areas like Iceland or to Sweden, um, I'm saying there the success of the marketing 
of Rajava, of, of you know, this, this anarchist image that they've been given. Um, and so it's, it's really just another instrument of the United States to try and destabilize Syria. But I honestly don't think it's going to work because, as you, you rightly say, even during the battles to liberate, for example, Deir Azor, um, Raqqa, um, whenever the Syrian army and the Kurds, again, going through Tim Ripley's book, because he, he covers all of these battles, um, it's very clear that, that the Kurds and the Syrian Arab army did not, they, they wouldn't clash, or certainly the Kurds wouldn't allow that to happen. And equally, um, there was a report about, I think it was a few weeks ago, or maybe a month ago, of French troops entering the northeast um, via Iraq from memory. Um, and basically the tribesmen drove them out. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, the, equally the NATO member states are not going to want to commit boots on the ground. So if the cracks start appearing in the resolve of the SDF after negotiation with both Russia and because, you know, Russia has very much a big role in the reconciliation um, negotiations because it's a trusted, it's a trusted intermediary, um, and and it is very much thanks to the Russian reconciliation teams that so many of the militants and even the armed, you know, civilians who'd taken up arms remain behind in eastern Ghouta and in East Aleppo, in fact. Um, and so it's it's not only the negotiations with the Syrian government, but those will be very much brokered by Russia, who's, again, as I've said, you know, they've had huge success in culturally integrating, in appreciating the societal norms inside Syria and respecting them. And again, this is completely not what the West ever does in any of these interventions. It has no understanding or comprehension of the culture. It completely underestimated the unity of Syria, and the, the, it completely underestimated how the majority of Syrians in defense of their secular state would line up behind um, their government, their army, and their president. Um, and so, you know, we're seven years into this war now, um, and the West is losing on all fronts. It's losing on the media front. It's even losing on the economic front. I mean, even with the... Um, the imposing of crippling sanctions, economic terrorism, those are also being <laughs> subverted by Syria's relationships with China, with Iran, with Russia, with Lebanon, you know. So it's, it's sort of none of its tactics are working, basically. And they've got nowhere to go, Pat, except either they suddenly decide they need to be sensible about this, which I kind of almost immediately discount that one, um, the only way they will go is to create another false flag because they don't have anything else in their little handbook of destroying nations. They've run out of ideas now. They've run out of tactics. Yeah. Well, you, you know, you're firstly, I just want to go back and say, you know, you're absolutely correct about uh, Russia having a better handle on, let's say, the ethnography uh, and the cultural uh, diversity of Syria. That's evident in the Russian maps. If you look at early on when you know, the Russians were putting out their analysis back in 2013, 2014, much more sophisticated if you compare them to the U.S. 
uh, and also some of the European partners. But the image that it just sticks in my mind, Vanessa, and you probably saw this as well uh, when we were in uh, in Alwar uh, uh, in Homs during one of the reconciliation um, mm. exchanges, where Russian soldiers with their prayer mats out uh, praying. Um, mm. it, I'll never forget that because it mm. was like it totally threw me by surprise. Uh, but then I, I realized, yeah, there, there are quite a lot of Muslims in Russia, mm. and and many of them serve in the military. Mm. Um, so, so they're 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 deployed in Syria, and so you know, totally, uh, I can see the affinity between um, the, the mentality in Syria and and the Russian as well. But I can't see it with the U.S. Uh, who kind of go in there like cowboys, all mm. guns blazing, and. Uh, with a kind of a superiority exceptionalist uh, complex, but but isn't the jewel of of the of the crown for the U.S. operation are the oil uh, yep. in the northeast of Syria? Because it, how important is this? Because if you look at the, uh, the economic report, um, that's Syria. That's the government's number one was the number one source of income. The conflict. So in terms of getting them back on their feet economically. But that, that's one of their main sources of income. So mm-hmm. sanctions plus no access to your own fuel, to your mm-hmm. own oil. I mean, that's a serious um, hole in mm-hmm. your ability to rebuild your country. So is that is that what the main U.S. motivation is with the SDF, with the U.S. occupation, to keep Syria away from its own energy assets? Yeah, and I think, you know, if you look at, I think uh, Kavok uh, Almasian has done a number of, or a couple of reports at least, on, on you know, what the U.S. Um, objective is here. But also, if you look at the, occup- let's say, the occupied areas, so the Northwest is effectively occupied um, by a number of extremist and terrorist factions in Idlib, which are largely under the control of Turkey. So we can say that that's a Turkish proxy occupation when Turkey obviously now has a foothold in Afrin also. Um, And then if we look to the northeast, you have uh, the US coalition there alongside their proxy, which is the SDF. And in the south, you have, of course, the longstanding occupation of the Golan territories by by Israel. but if we also consider, Pat, I don't think, and, and, you know, this is just my theory here, and it's something that I've been looking at for some while, that this is a sort of, it's not only oil resources, it's also hydro hegemony here. Because to the yeah. northwest, of course, you have the supply from the Euphrates that is largely under the control of Turkey anyway. And, of course, Turkey also has control over that as regards Iraq. Um, and and there is some there is some belief um, that the drought, which I believe was in 2006, could have been caused um, by Turkey's, you know, um, misuse of the dams over the Euphrates. But also in the Golan Heights, Israel takes something like 30% of its water supply from the Golan Heights. So, and, and if you look at where these occupations are, so the northwest, the northeast, and to the south, of course, what it what what ideally they want to do is to prevent one um, the Iranian land passage from Iran through Iraq through Syria and down towards um, Palestine, of course, and of course to Hezbollah, so enable them to keep arming Hezbollah, but also to give them a road access um, to its troops or to its allies on the border with Israel, of course. But what they also want to do is to prevent any sort of unification between Syria and its neighbours. 
So if they can keep a sort of buffer zone <laughs> around the border areas of Syria, that plays to the US advantage. Of course, the Syrian Arab army has largely prevented that by moving to the northeast of Al-Tanaf base, which is the US illegal um, base inside one of them, because there's now believed to be about 20 US bases in that area. But the Al-Tanaf one was the main one, and that was an attempt to prevent um, Iraqi unification with Syria. But of course, what the Syrian army did was outflank it again and moved to the northeast and set up the unification there. Um, so largely, the Al-Tanaf base is is now, you know, it's, it's pointless, basically. Um, so you're right in the sense of, yes, um, keeping hold of the oil revenue and the oil supply. Um, but I think there is more to it than that. I, I think there is also an element of, of this hydro hegemony and um, control of resources generally. Yeah, you're right about the, uh, the the water coming from Turkey. The Iraqis have made that accusation on the Tigris. Mm. Uh, yeah. And, and, and they have, that, that's quite a strong case, actually. Um, mm. And so the Turkey is playing kind of, a, you know, a, a role there in the sort of uh, determining that, you know, the health of uh, the hydro health, as it were, of Iraq and mm. also Syria as well. Um, so, yeah, as much as as much as it is an oil war, it is also a water, water war, uh, mm. which is taking place. And that's a really important point. Um, uh, especially in this region, which is uh, does does have good droughts from time to time, and is uh, heavily reliant on agriculture for the mm. health of the nation. Uh, so it's very very important there. But back to the white helmets, Vanessa. My question <laughs> to you is this: Okay, now <laughs> the, the, as the Syrian Arab Army advance, as uh, the government advances to retake territory, which they have been doing gradually over the last <laughs> two years. There's smaller and smaller and smaller areas in which the White Helmets are able to operate because it should also be reiterated that they only operate in militant or terrorist-held areas, and those are shrinking, and they will continue to shrink. So there's two questions. Where else can, where can they operate presently? And the second question is, where is all the money going? Because if you count the, the you have the actors or the volunteers who are who get paid, but only a few uh, hundred and fifty or two hundred uh, a month, maybe. But uh, and then you have the art directors, you have the media teams. You you pointed out one hundred and fifty on the media team. Is that is that not where all the money is going, Vanessa? Is it? <laughs> Because it can't be going for rest, search and rescue. Because how much does that cost to run ambulances? And if there are volunteers, like they said, well, it shouldn't cost more than a few hundred grand uh, for how many operate? They don't have three thousand volunteers in Syria. Are you kidding me? We're talking what about active? You know, maybe a couple hundred max. Mm. Um, so well, I mean, you also have to take in, you have to take into consideration, but that I mean, many of the civilians have have basically made statements that um, there are no white helmets. <laughs> basically, there are only armed groups that put on the white helmet uniforms when they need to um, to film an attack or to produce a, a staged event in order to try and initiate foreign intervention, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, that also needs to be taken into account. Who exactly are these white helmets? We've identified many of the more particular leaders as being um, militant members or armed members of militant groups. 
You know, we, we identified them in East Aleppo, we've identified them in Hama, we've identified them in Idlib as such. So the leaders are armed members of militant groups that are being, as we know, effectively financed by the UK government, by the US and by a number of NATO member states and, and then also the Gulf states, Qatar, Saudi Arabia. We know that they're being given medical treatment by Israel on the southern borders, etc. Um so if we look at where the white helmets are now, uh, they're not, interestingly enough, they're not in the northeast, to my knowledge, <laughs> um, which is interesting. I mean, they were certainly nowhere to be seen, for example, in Raqqa, of course, when the U.S. was obliterating Raqqa and massacring. I mean, the Amnesty International report that's just come out, it's, it's actually hats off to Amnesty. It's actually a very good report. But, of course, in my view, it has most likely downplayed the body count, as they did in Mosul, of course. I mean, we know now in Mosul, it's more likely to be tens of thousands than, than thousands of civilians that were massacred in Mosul um, during the so-called U.S. Um, coalition liberation from ISIS. Um, but a very similar scenario in Raqqa, um, with the U.S. coalition certainly um, not carrying out precision bombing. I mean, I think until now, the UK Minister of Defence um, has only admitted the death of one civilian from their bombing campaign. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is this is just extraordinary um, obfuscation of their own crimes against the Syrian people by the British government. Um, and that includes, of course, the bombing of the Syrian Arab Army in 2016, with a UK a UK Reaper drone was part of that um, coalition bombing force that massacred over 70 Syrian Arab Army soldiers and bombed them for over one hour. Um, so if we look at the fact that, that in Raqqa, um, we certainly didn't hear anything about white helmets being there. But of course, then the US had the SDF on the ground and it was actually the SDF that were determining the targets for them. Um, now, again, if you look at um, if you read Tim Ripley's book, what is very interesting, if you compare the Mosul and the Raqqa operations, um, it's very clear, as I've just said, that the U.S. coalition um, have taken no care of civilian life. It has been considered to be an inadvertent collateral damage. And that's a quote, direct quote from um, military representatives in the U.S. and in the U.K., both in Mosul and in Raqqa. There were no humanitarian corridors set up. Um, none of the areas were demined before civilians went back. So civilians are still dying from the booby traps and the IEDs left behind by ISIS in both Mosul and in Raqqa, but particularly in whoa, Raqqa. Whoa. Hold on, hold on. So, so they, they haven't sent sappers in? No. Uh, so, so, okay, so let... <laughs> So, okay, after Aleppo, who were mm. the first, who, after Aleppo, East Aleppo was liberated, who were the first people to go in mm. uh, after that? It was the Russian who? It was the Russian to, to clear To clear all the IEDs, to clear what? all the landmines. Yeah. And then they, they cleared 10, yeah, I think something like 10,000 hectares. I mean, it was huge, it was a vast operation. Right. So um, and then people right could there, go Vanessa, back in. Yeah, now. it's huge. Yeah. And kids now so, are dying yeah. in Raqqa because, of course, they're climbing over the rubble. And, um, you know, as we know from East Aleppo, 
and in eastern Ghouta, actually, that what they will do is booby trap virtually everything, even in the civilian houses. So if someone goes in and opens the door of a washing machine, it blows up. Um, we know that kids' toys were booby-trapped, for example, in East Aleppo. There was a report put out by the Russian sappers about that. Um, but but this is exactly the point, that in East Aleppo, if we just take East Aleppo, but, you know, it, it can be mirrored in Eastern Ghouta and it can be mirrored in, in the other operations to liberate areas of Syria. But in East Aleppo in particular, yes, the Russian sappers went in. But even during the military campaign, according to Tim Ripley's book, which is based upon um, a number of resources to actually pinpoint the Russian bombing campaign, for example, according to him, it was limited and it was targeted. And what the Russians used to, to use was this, uh, let me get the name right, <laughs> it was a four-post drone that would go ahead of the Syrian army forces and it would pinpoint exactly where the terrorists were embedded. So as the Syrian army was advancing, it knew exactly where civilians were and it knew exactly where the terrorist entities were hiding. So in other words, that again reduced the civilian um, deaths and casualties because the Syrian army was working on information. So basically what was happening was the Russian drone was going ahead of them it was feeding visual information back to a command center that was run by the Russians and the Syrian Arab army. They were then on walkie-talkies to the commanders on the ground. And so the commanders on the ground were, be, were being given real-time information as to where there were civilians, so not to target there, and where there were um, terrorist groups, right? And according to Ripley, that is what reduced the civilian casualties. Now, of course, in Raqqa, all that the SDF were doing, they weren't engaging with ISIS, but what they were doing was radioing to, um, the, to the US coalition which targets to bomb, but the majority of those targets were civilian areas, right? right. So yeah. this was entirely, and, and you know, my view is anyway, that if we consider what the US wants to achieve in, in the Northeast is, is a state, is a separate state run by its proxy um, shadow government, then, if, you know, how likely is it that the SDF in collusion um, with the U.S. coalition is effectively running an ethnic cleansing program here no, and, and deliberately so, targeting civilians to drive them out of Raqqa to allow the, the U.S. to impose its puppet regime or its shadow um, government inside the northeast so when That's you compare the two operations you know it's it's completely you cannot compare them no, you, that's not a hypothesis. That's that what you just described, Vanessa, is exactly what has been happening. The, mm. the, the there has been a, that level of ethnic cleansing, and I've also seen reports of people coming back and not being allowed back because of certain certain Kurdish uh, uh, militias, whatever, not allowing people back, or in in also reports of intimidation. I think you've probably seen yeah. some of these as well. And on top yeah. of that. On top of that, they're changing the signs. Uh, this was reported yeah. by uh, Fabrice uh, Balanche uh, to Kurdish language in Raqqa, yeah. and th yeah. that's not they're 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 a minority in Raqqa. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not anywhere near uh, on parity with the Arab population. So mm -hmm. this this is all uh, artificial, yeah. changing the face, changing the ethnic face of northeastern Syria. I think it's pretty obvious. Mm. That that's absolutely what's happening, Vanessa. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's it's incredibly again, as you said, um, 
even so so even during the campaign in East Aleppo and Eastern Ghouta, the Russians in particular, because as I said, they were trusted by both sides, um, were enabling and protecting the civilians trying to leave by the humanitarian corridors. But in Eastern Ghouta, we saw Syrian Arab army um, coming under fire and shelling while they were trying to give cover for civilians that were trying to leave by the humanitarian corridors. But in East Aleppo, I mean, the operation was incredible. I mean, as they exited the humanitarian corridors at every single meeting point, um, there were um, medical teams, there were military teams in order to give them safe passage into the registration center. When they got to the registration center, there were a number of civil society organizations to take care of all their social security needs. There were food stations, there were warm drink stations, there were blanket stations to hand out blankets and clean clothes, for example, for those that didn't have any. Um, there were Russian mobile field hospitals that were probably treating around 150 civilians a day. We saw nothing of that in Mosul or in Raqqa, or in any single U.S. coalition operation to cleanse an area of a so-called terror threat, you know, a terror threat that effectively they've been supporting and promoting and, and allowing to flourish anyway um, from day one, whatever moniker you give it. Um, so, you know, when you compare um, the two operations, <clears throat> there is absolutely no comparison. The U.S. is here to destroy as much of Syria as it possibly can, to erase its history and its civilization and its culture as it's done um, in Libya, as it tried to do in Iraq, you know, where it's um, infected the country with, with its hideous green zones. I mean, you've experienced that with me, <clears throat> you know, colonization by, by high rise, basically. I mean, it's, it's just hideous. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, that is its, that is its MO. That's what it does. And it doesn't precision target. It doesn't limit its bombing. It, it just destroys as much as it can. And it kills as many as it can. Because they're of no consequence. You know, none of us should consider that our governments have any sort of humanitarian reflex anywhere in their system. Because if we look at what's happening in Yemen... This is a holocaust. What is happening in Yemen, it's not too strong a word to describe that situation. You know, now what is happening in Hodaida, and Hodaida was one of the last um, ports that was actually able to take in some of its smuggled humanitarian aid and food um, for the Yemeni people that have been under an illegitimate UN-sanctioned blockade, humanitarian blockade and food blockade, medical blockade imposed by Saudi Arabia and the coalition since um, March 2015. While Saudi Arabia is also bombing um, cholera hospitals, having created the conditions in which cholera would thrive and, and be another element to, to decimate the Yemeni population. So we should have, you know, we should have no illusions that, that my government, your government, Pat, any of the governments within the NATO member states and the US coalition that is trying to, to destabilize and regime change in Syria has any concern for the Syrian people whatsoever. No. You talked about humanitarian reflex. 
the only humanitarian reflex that the the, the U.S. and its uh, coalition partners have is the media reflex to step back and say, oh, what devastation. Oh, this is the, I'll quote Angelina Jolie here, this is the worst uh, devastation I have seen in all my years at the United Nations Human Rights Council. These people have lost everything, and the trauma and the loss they have uh, suffered is unparalleled. That's that's the acceptable human rights mm-hmm. reflex, which is t- to say, oh, what a tragedy. Um, please send your money to uh, you know UNICEF or Save the Children or whatever. Uh, uh, NGOs collecting money at that time and so I'm going to play this clip I'm so upset watching this clip because here's Angelina Jolie doing her little tour through uh, Mosul and she's wearing her flak jacket which probably weighs as much as she does Um, and so she's walking through there and she does this piece to camera uh, and it's all very cinema verite and I'm so sick of these actors to be honest you know what? What? Why? Why do actors? Why? How, I don't understand, Mike. Why do they need to go from the silver screen onto the onto the boob tube, okay, and then still project this image of like they're they're the spokesperson for humanity? Uh, when what is their claim to fame? They're, they 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 play roles in films, okay. These are not. I I totally disagree that these are suitable spokespersons or role models for anybody anymore i think that that time has passed you know that that part of history it's a joke you know i i i'm gonna play this here's her doing her piece to camera it doesn't say she she has a she has an opportunity to lambaste the united states for what they've done in mosul and then she goes saying that there's unexploded ordinances everywhere well the <laughs> reason why there's unexploded ordinances everywhere is what you just uh mm. have explained a couple of minutes ago so this is a perfect opportunity for her to actually make an impact to keep something like this from happening again and she doesn't instead it's oh the horror oh the tragedy oh etc listen to this this is this is the worst devastation i've seen in all my years with unhcr these people have lost everything and the trauma and the loss that they've suffered is unparalleled they're here on their own with very little support, next to nothing. And they're rebuilding themselves with their bare hands. They're moving the rubble with their bare hands. And their bodies in this rubble that stay here. And you can smell the bodies. And some of them have family members that are here, and they're unable to move them. And there's unexploded ordnance. And yet they are so happy because the last Eid, they were under occupation and suffering. And this Eid, they have nothing, but they're free. Oh, so they've got their freedom. Okay. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know where quite to start here. Um, okay. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. Uh, she's there and she's, she's, I don't know where exactly she is in Mosul, but she's describing what she's saying. Okay. Fair enough. The problem with actors, Mike, is I don't know where and when the, when the the film stop, stops and when the reality begins. This is the problem with actors, okay? I don't know if she's acting there or not. She'll probably say, no, that was all me. That was 100% me. Um, but again, uh, where, where, where is the condemnation? Is this somebody who supported the Iraq war? I tend to think that a lot of these Hollywood actors did support the Iraq war in, 20, in 2003. She and William Hague have been campaigning for the last two or three years on 
on the, the issue of, of uh, rape as a weapon of war. Uh, at, n- at no point have I ever heard her. Maybe if somebody can point it out, but I haven't heard it. At no point have I heard her condemning uh, the war narrative or uh, trying to to argue against having wars. She's just campaigning against rape as a weapon of war. Uh, this, this is an untenable position to be standing in, as far as I'm concerned. Vanessa may have another opinion, but you can't, you can't single out one aspect of war and say, that's unacceptable and the rest of it's fine, because that's tantamount to what she's doing. Mm. No, I mean, I agree. I mean, you know, this is just, oh, God, it's, it's just sort of war porn, really. <laughs> I mean, what's she going to do next, adopt a child? I mean, this is just, you know, I, I actually just find this so distasteful. Um, I mean, Pat, you and I met a journalist in Iraq who was actually um, in Mosul during the last moments of that liberation and um, probably one of the most harrowing reports I've ever read of um, climbing over the bodies of women and children that had just been simply massacred by the Iraqi army as they were moving in. And, of course, you know, that would not be happening without the endorsement of um, the U.S., who basically was driving that campaign. Um, And, of course, you know, the reasoning was that ISIS, and it is true that ISIS were using children, they were using women as suicide bombers. Um, And there were other stories of of Iraqi soldiers um, being... Um, killed as they tried to rescue children and women, for example, that had been um, suicide belted. So, you know, it, it's an incredibly difficult situation to try and appraise from that perspective. But, but the fact is that tens of thousands of civilians were massacred in Mosul. And we know that the U.S. provided no safe shelter for them. And it's has been demonstrated if there's still unexploded ordnance. When was Mosul... Um, I, I, I don't want to use the word liberated. Um, when were ISIS driven out of Mosul? It was some time ago now. And yet there are still unexploded ordnance. You know, and, and, and as we know, this doesn't happen in Syria, for example. It just doesn't happen. If areas are liberated, they're cleansed. I mean, even when we go in as a media team, we can only go into areas once the Syrian army and the Russians have gone in and cleared it of IEDs because it's considered to be unsafe. The civilians that have been safely evacuated cannot go back until those areas are safe and also until water and electricity has been returned. Humanitarian supplies can get through, etc. We know that in Raqqa um, there are complaints almost on a weekly basis from um, the Russians in the UN that the US is not allowing humanitarian supplies into those areas. So those civilians are still being starved, but they're being starved by the US coalition that claimed to liberate them. You know, and Boris Johnson is taking credit for the defeat of ISIS in the UK. Um, (laughs) And yet they're not feeding the civilians that they supposedly liberated. They're not providing any aftercare for them and exactly the same thing in Raqqa. And here you have, you know, this celebrity cult figure tripping around over the remains of what her country has done to Iraq. And I just find it obscene, actually. You know, she should be standing there, and as Mike said, you you can't just pick out one aspect of war. The entire war apparatus should be protested against, Mm -hmm. and that is being led by her country and by the UN. 
No. You know, the UN cannot be described as any sort of, I mean, it's a toothless institution that is effectively run by the UN Security Council, the, U, the US effectively, supported by the UK and France with Russia and China with the ability to veto, but that's about it. Mm -hmm. Well, look, look. The, the, so here's Angelina Jolie. This was in January of this year. Okay, and we'll we'll you know we'll have we'll have a look at her right here. She she calls on world powers to end the Syrian war as if she's in a position to influence that. End the Syrian war as she tours refugee camp in Jordan. So she's at the Zatari refugee right. camp in Jordan, and she's called on the international community to end this senseless conflict uh, as the war enters Syria. Now, she's got a position uh, with the United Nations. She is absolutely able to go into Syria, into Damascus, to meet whoever, to go and tour any place she wants inside of Syria. But she's no, and it's and it's perfectly safe uh, if she's with a UN convoy. Obviously, uh, pretty pretty darn safe, right? So safer than you would crossing the street in New York City. Um, and so instead, she's roaming around the Jordanian uh, and Lebanese refugee camps. Um, and why is that? Is that because she's working for the UN or is she working for the U.S. government? Really, uh, there are those reports about her with some CIA connections that came out earlier this year. So it's it, so. What, what is really her position there? She's she's basically saying, "Oh, we need to stop this senseless war." Her and her own government is instrumental in uh, propagating this war, not just the military war, but the economic war as well. Uh, and so the United States, so if she really cared about the people, if she really wanted to stop the refugee crisis, if she really wanted to help people, she would turn and uh, go on the offensive against the United States uh, government and its military industrial complex and all the sort of bad actors that have basically conceived this conflict and are propagating it and allowing it to carry on uh, indefinitely. And mm -hmm. occupying, illegally occupying against international law, against UN principles, against UN principles of international law, who she supposedly works for, the UN, the United Nations, they're illegally occupying northeastern Syria against mm -hmm. every single UN uh, 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 charter mm -hmm. uh, provision. This is ridiculous. Who is this person? She's an, okay, I'm just going to say, you're just an actor, okay? And you're acting. I'm going to say, Angelina Jolie, you're acting, okay? Because if you were real, you would be turning on Washington right now and laying down the law and mm. getting the people behind you, okay? Or, or or what? Or what? You might lose your job in Hollywood. What do these people have to lose, Mike? She's probably got a couple hundred million in the bank and like five or six properties. What have you got to lose at that point in your career? Why don't you make a difference, are you not able to to do that? Is that is that going to be career suicide? You've already made your money. You've got more money than you know you could spend for the rest of your life. What's and also, I people? mean, if she's been into these refugee camps, has she talked about the child trafficking? Has she talked about the prostitution? Has she talked about the extremist elements in these camps? You no. know. Yeah, and that's a big <laughs> issue. That's a big issue. They're, they're breeding grounds, all of these camps, mm -hmm. for all, all sorts of vice and all sorts of, uh, like, ancillary crimes, which you've outlined there. Uh, plus, there's other things, too, in addition to that. I mean, it's the, so the, the, unbelievable. But um, ultimately, this all goes back to her government, right? 
you know, and as you said, violation of international law. And I was talking with Mike earlier about the fact that I think at the next media trial event, or, or at some point, we should be focusing on why do journalists not cite international law? Because I've read a number of reports recently, um, and and when I read the position of the journalist, if they were just to apply international law when they're making the commentary, they do. That would completely flip what they're saying, because it would actually um, put a lid on on their on their speculation, let's say, and it would push it down the road of international law and how basically the West is not adhering to it in any way, shape, or form. You know, we've become from from the tripartite bombing in Syria um, in April by by the U.S., uh, U.K., and France. Um, we've just entered an age. We were always lawless. But now we've just entered an age. I mean, it's beyond cowboys. This is just some sort of vigilante outfit that is NATO, that is doing what it wants globally without any redress, without any restriction from a body that is applying international law because the UN is, it no longer has any purpose, to be honest, Um other than to give a lot of people jobs and enable them to push paper around and, and to make numbers up. And that's about it. <laughs> what they're not, they're not focusing on international law. You're right. And neither is the media. What the obsession is, is to the, the replacement for international law. Now it's is the emotive. <laughs> it's no, it's international justice. Okay. Yeah. International justice, which is kind of an internationalized version of social justice. Uh, and so that's to replace any talk or any accountability of international law. So in a sense, mm -hmm. by, by promoting international justice as the sort of be-all, end-all of the raison d'etre of the international community and the, you know, the ICC and the Hague uh, and the Human Rights Watch, Ken Roth and Amnesty International, um, but not having anything to say or anything in terms of accountability for international law, this is promoting anarchy in the international mm. system this is promoting lawlessness and the type of cowboy uh outfits that that you're talking about just now uh mm. which is what nato have become which is this kind of uh uh pr sort of protection racket you know that's what the u.s is and but you know ostensibly that's what nato is as well it's this kind of protection racket for the military industrial complex and so they hype up the syrian threat the chemical weapons threat they hype up the russian threat and they use this to basically drive this multi-billion-dollar industry globally, mm. uh, and they use the, the, the so the amnesties and the human rights watches of the world. What they do is produce all the reports of all the atrocities uh, and all the horrible things, and and they skewer the Slobodan Milosevic's of the world uh, or whoever's next, Muammar Gaddafi, Bashar al-Assad, and soon there won't be any of these guys left, or maybe not. Maybe they'll still be in office. Mm. <laughs> they'll still be in their jobs. In 20 but, years. But, yeah, go ahead, Vanessa. Sorry. No, that. I think what is also just coming back to Angelina Jolie here and visiting the Zatari camp in Jordan, etc., and refugee camps in Lebanon. But also what is extraordinary part is that I speak to other people, and that includes myself. I've, I've spoken to refugees um, in Lebanon, the majority of whom want to go back to Syria. Now, when I was in Sweden in the last couple of days, I spoke to the head of an NGO there, a small independent NGO, who gave a presentation at uh, Uppsala University. Um, 
very good one, actually. He covered the NGO complex and hybrid wars. Um, but he told me that uh, not only is the UN, he said, he basically said to me, he, he'd worked for many years inside the UN, and he said, basically, the UN has no idea what it's doing with figures. It takes most of its figures from other organizations, and then it just puts it into a UN report. And he said, most of the time, they're, they're widely, wildly inaccurate. Now, for example, the UN figures on Syrian refugees in Sweden is around, I think, 250,000. He told me it's much less than that. It's around 120,000. And he said of that 120,000, the majority support the Syrian government and the Syrian army. And he said not only that, he said of all the refugees that he's dealt with for his entire career, the Syrians are completely separate in the sense that they want to go home. None of them want to stay in the host country. The majority of them only want to stay there until it's safe for them to go home. And safe for them means the liberation of the area they came from, from terrorist groups. Now, this is never mentioned by the Angelina Jolies of the world, right? This perspective is never presented by them. Yeah. The BBC tried to tried to run this story uh, recently. I, I shared it at the media on trial about uh, this uh, Syrian refugee from uh, Berlin or, or from Germany, I guess, who wanted to return home. So he's making the arduous journey uh, through Europe, through, mm -hmm. through Germany, down to Greece, across to Turkey, and trying to get back into Syria. I guess he's from Aleppo, Aleppo area. And so, in, in, so <laughs> we're, we're told that they have all left Syria to flee the brutal Bashar al-Assad. <laughs> And the, the, the violence of this evil henchman, uh, bloodthirsty, killing his own people just randomly and for sport. Uh, and so all of a sudden, there's all millions of uh, hundreds of thousands of Syrians, millions, in fact, who have returned in the last uh, 12 months. Uh, and uh, who's, who's in charge of Syria, uh, by the way? Uh, <laughs> It's the same government that when they left. So clearly that, that, that's, that's the narrative that the Western media don't want to, um, they don't want to give that any oxygen because if they give that narrative oxygen, which is the real, the reality of the story, then they have to basically, it, it undermines and discredits yeah. everything they've said for the last uh, seven years. Mm. So they, they don't want to budge on that. That's absolutely like sacrosanct. So the BBC did a really careful job of not really talking <laughs> about that part of the story. So it, again, it's all about the refugees. It's all about the spectacle, the mm. suffering. Oh, the human disaster. Oh, it's just a senseless war. Uh, both sides are at fault, and uh, it's just horrible. The civil war in Syria, and oh, we should and just mm, do it. You send some money. You know, mm. send, send some money to, you know, some NGO or charity and that will, you've done your bit and, uh, you know, and it's, 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 that, eventually that's what it's going to, it's going to boil down to. It's not everyone's fault, but the, the refugee industry um, doesn't, doesn't, it, it doesn't have to be uh, there in this case. You're absolutely correct, Vanessa, the, the majority of Syrians want to go back home. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is, and we also have to remember that looking at it cynically, refugees are big money. You know, we know for a fact that MSF, I think in 2016, had raised something like 19 million for refugees, and yet they pulled out of the Moria Center in Lesbos in early 2016. So where did that 19 million go? <laughs> well, for yeah. Turkey, Turkey managed to uh, um, extort a few billion euros, I think. 
um, and 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 I'm sure they spent uh, quite quite a bit of money on their refugee camps and the services and policing and so forth. Mm. No doubt that they did. However, um, they did get a nice chunk uh, from Europe. Yeah. Um, as, as part of a provision there, so yeah, it's it's huge money. Um, the United United Nations or some UN affiliated group gave a huge loan, I think, a couple billion, to Lebanon towards education of uh, all the Syrian refugees that they're looking after. So, mm-hmm. um, and when I was in Lebanon at the time, people were like, I was like, well, how, where, how is that going to get spent all on education? People just rolled their eyes when I said that. <laughs> I said, how long before the money disappears? They said five minutes. Mm. five minutes it's gone you know two, yeah. two billion or whatever it was and uh it's huge money this mm. the this crisis in all around europe mike if you look at italy germany this the refugee business in germany is a multi-billion euro uh business we're talking about social services english schools education housing uh counseling um, all the job career agencies they're all contracted but and getting paid by Europe by the German government to deliver goods and services for the the refugees. Well, this is commercial. It's state people trafficking. Mm. Yeah, it's state sponsored people traffic. Absolutely. Yeah. And 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 under the cover of that, we've got the illegal people trafficking as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we've had so much stuff out of the British government in the last uh, twelve months about how they're dealing with it. Britain is going to lead the way globally in stopping people trafficking. Britain is going to lead the way globally in preventing sex slavery, modern day slavery. We're, we're running conferences on it. We're doing all kinds of stuff. And you look at the profits that are being made through illegal people trafficking and, and uh, slavery, modern day slavery and so on. And you look at uh, how much money the British government, the leaders in the world are putting forward to prevent it. And you see that this is exactly the same business model as the drugs trade exactly the same business model they put a fraction of the profits back in to so that they can run europol mm-hmm. uh you know ro- europol programs to stop people trafficking a fraction of the money put into that uh they that gives them a, they, they, some plausible deniability that they're doing anything about it in the meantime you've got this massive uh uh business, this massive mafia-style business, organized crime business going on uh, out in the open uh, mm-hmm. and with the support, well, with the tacit support, it seems, of, of governments right across Europe and the West. Yeah, so yeah, so that's important what you pointed out, Mike, is that you have the, the state-sponsored, the state-authorized industry and all its privatized uh, contractor entities. Then you have the black market running parallel to that. They're, they're, they're well, running parallel and feeding into it because in many, in many yeah. cases, uh, you know, because they've got to have institutions that are there to deal with the, the people that are reported to them as being, uh, mm-hmm. you know, modern-day slaves and so on. So so you've got some feed-in from the, from the illegal side into the legal side. So the question is, which of these same European countries – and the United States and its partners and Canada are are they they're also directly involved in the f- creating and triggering the crisis in the first place. Of course, and that's the part that never gets discussed. Yep. You never hear this in any of the discussions. You won't see any of this by any of these mainstream media outlets uh, and journalists. Uh, you don't read much about this in the Guardian. Vanessa, have, uh, how many times have you um, have you seen anybody? really seriously in the mainstream address or politics or, or journalism address the causes of this uh, refugee crisis? No, of course not. <laughs> and isn't that, isn't no. that 
that's the that's the main point. But this is the point, isn't it? I mean, it's it's on two levels, really, Pat. One, they should be applying international law. But two, they never address the symptoms, always the cause. And the cause, oh, sorry, they always address the symptoms, not the cause. And the cause is almost invariably their own governments. And actually, I would argue, their own media outlets. <laughs> because... Very few of these crimes against the people of Syria, against um, the people of the region, would 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 happen without, as you say, um, the complicity of the media outlets. And and I mean, for example, tonight there was a very short interview with an Oxford academic on the BBC about Yemen. I mean, it was an appalling just replay of the Western narrative that it's an Iranian. Saudi proxy war that the Houthis took over Sana'a and they should never have done that. And so therefore they are putting their own people at risk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was just, oh, and the, the legitimate government, blah, 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 Mansour Hadi, who, by the way, resigned twice. But let's forget all about that. Let's forget about the illegitimacy of Resolution 2216 that was against five named people, but has been, you know, the, the actual causes are completely overlooked. They're completely overlooked because it's so much easier to just deal with the symptoms because the symptoms elicit sympathy. And one of the things that struck me uh, in Uppsala in this NGO presentation was that he raised the question of Alan Kurdi, but he didn't put it, he deliberately didn't show a photograph of Alan Kurdi. Do you know what? Not one of those students in that room who I'm quite sure were outraged by the image of Alan Kurdi when it came out and probably gave money to MSF or any of these refugee agencies. Not one person in that room could remember who Alan Kurdi was. Gosh, there you go. That is yeah. how shallow our our, our comprehension of what is going on in the world is. And it's not the fault of, of those students in the room or of the public themselves. But how quickly did Alan Kurdi, how quickly did Omran enter the memory hole? Right? <laughs> Yeah, immediately. You know, no one can remember. No. Yeah. And yet, you know, in the meantime, if we, you know, if we come back to Raqqa, just something else I remembered from the Amnesty report. You know, we've talked about the humanitarian corridors in the Russian-Syrian campaigns. No corridors were given to the civilians in Raqqa. But you know what they had to do? They had to pay hundreds of dollars to ISIS to get them through the ISIS minefields to safety. The majority of them couldn't even afford to pay the smuggling money. So they had to try to cross minefields, right? And those that came behind them were, tre were, were treading on the bodies of their neighbors and their relatives to try and get out of Raqqa. Yeah. And the final, the final ISIS fighters who got out of Raqqa did so under the escort yeah. of the SDF. Yeah. The U.S.-backed SDF. That was even reported of all yeah. people by the BBC. Yeah. Yeah, because the so, BBC were there. If you remember, Russia actually took the BBC in. Mm -hmm. So there, there. So, so that's the real story. Yeah. Uh, with regards to Raqqa, well, it, you know, every, at, at every turn, uh, we 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 see the uh, hypocrisy, the inconsistency on these stories. But really, Mike um, and and Vanessa, uh, the persons I don't blame. Uh, I don't. I, I gave up blaming politicians. Okay, I gave up. Because politicians will do what they do, which is make expedient statements and speeches based on little or no information uh, and do what's perceived to be politically correct. The person I blame uh, is, is the media.
is the press because they're in a position to be objective. They're in a position to figure all this stuff out and to report it, and they haven't been doing it because they're either in league with the state or the governments or it's just too cozy of a relationship they have uh, between the governments, the uh, security services, and, uh, and some of these NGOs uh, who aren't really NGOs. They're, they're GOs like the White Helmets. Mm. They're a government organization, the U.S. and U.K. government and Dutch government organization. They're not an NGO, okay? Um, they're the, the too cozy of a relationship. So I lay the blame at the feet of the press, of the media, because if they have been doing their job, uh, we wouldn't see half of any of this, and we wouldn't be talking about it right now, quite frankly. Uh, we would be talking about something completely different uh, right now, but because of the press have really been the major enabler over the last seven years. And um, I am I am happy to hear, Vanessa, about this book that came out. Um, just we got a, a couple of minutes left. Just give everybody a shout-out about that book, uh, its title, again, its author, and uh, and do uh, encourage people to go and seek this one out. Um, the title of the book, I'm just going to double-check. <laughs> um, the author is Tim Ripley, R-I-P-L-E-Y. Uh, and the name of the book, yeah, that's right, is Operation Aleppo, Russia's War in Syria. But if you also go to Tim's website, um, he did a presentation at a conference that I attended, and that's where I actually met him. You can find all of his presentation slides where he runs through, for example, the Battle for Aleppo. Um, and those are themselves quite fascinating. You won't find them in the book, but you will find them uh, on his website. And in that, he basically outlines on presentation slides, so visual images, etc., um, all the stages of the battles for Aleppo. And I think, you know, while all of us have, have defended to a large extent the Russian and Syrian military campaigns, it's been very hard to um, to evidence our belief that they were um, targeted, limited, um, hugely respectful of uh, human life. And yet what Tim's book does is to actually evidence what we were saying. So I think, you know, and it's very objective. Um, it's still written by largely an independent but still mainstream connected writer and um, military defense expert. Um, so there are aspects of the book that, that perhaps I would question based on, on evidence on the ground, but that's fine. Um, but largely the military um, information is incredibly insightful and very revealing and basically, as I say, backs up what we said, that the Russian-Syrian campaign um, was a very careful campaign and designed to preserve civilian life, to enable their safe exit from those terrorist hold areas, but also to enable reconciliation and amnesty agreements to be put into place. And then for the Russians to go in, as you said, you know, um, specifically chosen. I mean, he makes it quite clear in the book from information that he's received and interviews he's done that those special forces were chosen specifically, as you said, many of them were Muslim, many of them spoke Arabic. If not, they had um, fluent, spe fluent Arabic speakers with them in their teams, and they were there to basically ensure peace and security immediately after these liberation um, campaigns and to ensure the return of services, the maintaining of food and humanitarian supplies, 
until the government could get things up and running again, the Syrian government I'm talking about. So, you know, it's, it's, I, I, it's only 216 pages, so it's not a long read, but it's one that I think um, is an incredibly valuable resource. Uh, and the Kindle, the Kindle edition's only a fiver. So oh, okay, yeah. excellent. Yeah. And so we'll put a link to the book on the after the show. We're going to put a link up on on the show page, and and we'll promote that. We'll promote that mm. book as much as we can because we need people, uh, you know, to support people who are doing good good journalism, uh, like Mr. Ripley is. So uh, mm. we're very very happy to promote that in the going forward. Even we'll leave a link on. Uh, subsequent week's uh, show pages as well or anything to do with Syria and uh, and I will cite that also in, in my work as well going forward and I'm sure you will too Vanessa. Absolutely. Uh, so that's a great resource but um, listen, uh, go ahead Mike. Yeah, I was just going to say before Vanessa goes can I just uh, mention that uh, Reverend Andrew Ashton is speaking in Froome on Friday, really? next Friday the next 22nd, Friday. yes. Oh brilliant. Uh, and just uh, Vanessa, you know, Andrew needs Need support, so so you know he's he's under a lot of pressure at the moment because of the attacks from the mainstream mm. press, so the attacks from the Church of England themselves uh, for what he's doing. But uh, you know, just say something about about Andrew and his work, if, just in closing. Yeah, go ahead. Well, um, I mean, interestingly, actually, um, Tim Ripley in the introduction to his book or the forward um, mentions the interviews or that he had or, or that he that he interviewed, sorry, Andrew Ashdown and myself um, in order to get the perspective from on the ground because we know during the liberation of Aleppo there were very few people on the ground and Andrew was one of those people. Um, I think. You know, uh, Andrew has come under tremendous pressure, particularly, and I think probably that is, he won't mind me saying, that's the most upsetting aspect of it from his own church, um, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that what is he effectively trying to achieve here um, is interfaith understanding um, to create bridges between faith leaders in the West and those inside Syria who are all united behind um, the resistance against the NATO member state um, intervention or invasion of Syria. Um, and, you know, he's he's done a tremendous job in taking people in, even people that are and, and have obviously proven to be hostile even after they've left and after they've benefited from the hospitality of uh, the Syrians um, and particularly, you know, Syrian faith leaders Syrian faith organizations and you know I think it's terribly sad that in this day and age those who are trying to foster peace those who are trying to bring about a greater understanding those who are working with compassion um, and and a strong belief in humanity are those that are being the most attacked the most smeared and the most marginalized um, and oppressed and Andrew is among those and so I would put a call out to everyone please come um, when is it Mike it's on Friday isn't it Fr- Friday the 22nd that's next Friday uh, at the uh, uh, it, it's at Widox Lane, Lane and Froome uh, just give me one second and I'll tell you exactly what the name of the venue is, is. Stop War Froome uh, promoting it, this event it is yes yeah. is it? At, at the Rye Bakery the okay. Rye Bakery yeah. in Froome um, I'll be I'll be going, and I I would just ask everyone to come and show their support because 
everyone who is trying to do their best and doing it with honest and non-self-serving um, intentions um, deserve support. And if, you know, it, it takes so little to support these people. So I would just ask anyone in the area, please turn up, please support. And if you can, just put out a message to Andrew. Um, if you can't come to the event, just put out a message of support to him. Yeah, yeah, and he he is a real uniter. Um, he is dedicated a whole portion of his life to interfaith understanding communication. I've seen him with Muslim leaders uh, together in Syria, and you know, building bridges basically, uh, and completely at home doing that. And uh, I think it's despicable uh, that he's come under attack by his own church, and they have a lot to answer for. Uh, I, I believe, and I think everyone would agree with me if that's the way they're you know uh, tr treating their own. Uh, who are out trying to make peace and uh, build bridges in the world. I think that's just uh, shows you how politicized uh, religious institutions uh, have become. Mm. And that's another story uh, on its own. But yeah, great, great uh, person to support. So do get out there and support Andrew uh, either in person or uh, on social media. Um, he really would appreciate that. So we encourage people to do that. We'll put a link as well to that event on the show page afterwards. Uh, and encourage people to go and check that out. We'll also plug it uh, later on in the week, and also probably we'll see you tomorrow, Mike, on the UK Column News uh, tomorrow from 1 p.m. UK time to 2 p.m., and we'll also give some details again for that event mm -hmm. uh, on the show. But um, thank you so much, uh, Vanessa, and I know you're busy, so we appreciate uh, taking uh, the time out to, to give us such an in-depth uh, commentary uh, this week on Sunday Wire. Uh, certainly, this has been invaluable for our listeners uh, in terms of getting up to speed um, on this uh, important issue and the Syrian conflict. So, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Pat. Okay. Take care. There she goes, ladies and gentlemen. That's Vanessa Bealey, uh, independent journalist and associate editor, 21st Century Wire as well. And uh, we're going to take a short break. I'm here with my uh, guest in studio, Mike Robinson, editor of the UK Column. And we're going to take a short station break with ACR. And after this, we're going to Moscow. Uh, well, not physically, uh, but <laughs> we're going to go report about the World Cup and uh, all the sort of the demonization of, of the Russian World Cup by the Western press doing all they can uh, to paint this event as this, this horrible apocalypse of sport uh, taking place uh, this cup of shame, as it was called, Mike, uh, in the in the in the months running up to the World Cup. We're going to talk to our roving correspondent for culture and sport after the break. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. This is the Sunday Wire. Stay right there. We'll be right back. Mm -hmm. 